HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This week on Meet and Three, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they they weren't alone. It's partly this communal nature of food, and so it can operate as a bridge, um, not just between neighbors and friends, but also between the living and the dead. Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And the other day, well, actually, it wasn't the other day. (laughs) Funny how time has flown. It was probably in early summer, let's say June, you know, the height of this past COVID season and weird quarantines and I was rummaging around in the back of my liquor cabinet looking for something to make an interesting cocktail with. Um, Cocktails, right, because I drink cocktails all the time. No, this was like middle of the week. I don't know. But anyway, I was rummaging around looking for something. And I came across an old bottle of Pims that a friend had brought me. I don't know. She had been to England and she loved the Pims cup. And she said, oh, this will be fun. I'll bring it up for the summertime. We'll have a Pims cup. Then I thought I was thinking, but why am I looking for something to make a cocktail with? I'm really a wine drinker. And then I said, well, I thought to myself, well, of course, cocktails are festive. And well, I think my husband and I really needed something to lift our spirits. Things were getting kind of glum. And then I happened to think about the term spirits. Well, you know how the mind goes. I was starting to spin around. And and then I thought, but that's interesting. Lift my spirits. And yet we call these alcoholic drink spirits. But then I found out, interestingly enough, that spirit in reference to alcohol is from uh, Middle Eastern alchemy and probably from the medieval times, I, I think around the 14th century. But it was, you know, the, the, they were concerned with, you know, making medical elixirs. And, and uh, so the evaporation of the of the alcohol or distillation of the alcohol was actually called a 
spirit as it was, you know, flowing up and probably, a, you know, this ghostly looking, you know, stuff coming off of it. Anyway, that was how my mind was working then. But then back to the PIMS, I was thinking, what is PIMS anyway? And I realized I knew who I needed to talk to, my friend Kara Newman. Kara is a spirits and cocktail writer based in New York. And I've known Kara for, well, I was thinking it was about 15 years. Now I'm thinking it was more like 20 years. She is the spirits editor for Wine Enthusiasts. And her writing has appeared in publications, including the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic and Bloomberg Businessweek. Oh, by the way, she started out as a business writer. Mm -hmm. So she knows the business also of spirits. She was the founder and curator of the Drink Think literary reading series. Kara is also the author of six cocktail books, for which she's been on my show a couple of times, I think. Um, she's written Cocktails with a Twist, Nightcap, Shakespeare and Sip, all from Chronicle Books. And there's Cocktails for a Crowd, Spice and Ice, Road Soda. And her first book, The Secret Financial Life, of food. Kara won the IACP prestigious Burt Green Award in 2013, and she was also the recipient of the 2014 Farniente Winery Fellowship at the Symposium for Professional Wine Writers at Meadowood. Kara knows her spirits, and she knows how to write. Welcome, Kara. Hi, Linda. <laughs> um, all right, so you heard my whole rant about PIMS. What is PIMS anyway? Well, PIMS is, uh, it's a lot of fun to drink. It's certainly uh, one of those required drinks for making a PIMS cup for drinking at Wimbledon while you're watching tennis. Right. Uh, but it has a really long history. I mean, at heart, it's, it's a gin-based herbal liqueur, and it's got a little bit of bitterness from quinine, um, sort of like a, a tonic water type bitterness. It has a little bit of fruit, you know, a little bit of herbs, a sort of rosy, ready, rosy in, in color. And it's it's not too high in alcohol. So it's just really, you know, easy drinking. What, and why, why do they, there was something for a while, I don't know if it's still on the bottle or not, but I had read that there was um, uh, an announcement, public service announcement, do not attempt to drink Pim's neat. Hmm. I don't know why. I think it's it's better mixed. I don't think yeah, there's I mean, anything I, I've, wrong with drinking I've it sipped it. It certainly doesn't taste good neat. I mean, if you have to put something in it, you know, some lemonade or uh, some some bubbly water or bubbly, something to mix it with. I like with. it mixed with ginger ale. Ah, okay. And uh, as many garnishes as possible. Right. Well, that, don't they often call it a fruit cup? Yeah, yeah, the Pim's cup. I mean, that's really how the whole Pim's got started. Um, hmm. Unlike some drinks where there's no actual person behind it, like the Harvey Wallbanger, there is no Harvey Wallbanger, no such person. <laughs> but there is a Pym. There is. Well, there was uh, James Pym. He was a, a London fishmonger. And in the 1840s, he established a chain of, of oyster houses called Pym's Oyster Warehouse. And uh, you can imagine at the time there were oyster houses all over the place. And to make his a bit different, he created his own drink called the, the Pim's House Cup, which mm. later became Pim's number one. Right. And then 
after that time, there were PIMS number two and three and four. <laughs> I think. Oh, what yeah, up? all the way up to five. Wow. And a bunch of others with no numbers at all. Huh. So this was back in the 1840s. Wow. And it stayed around. I know. I mean, I, I know it's a very, you know, I in you read in literature, someone will even mention back, you know, like something from the early 1900s. They'll always be mentioning taking a, a break and having a libation of a PIMS cup. It became superbly popular, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he actually managed to eventually merchandise it and bottle it. Uh, The original he would sell in pewter tankards. But then later, um, as he merchandised the the Pim's Oyster Warehouse into warehouses, and there were there were plenty more. um, Eventually, he bottled Pim's. Um, I like to think of it as the first ready to drink cocktail. That was in 1865. And of course, you know, lately there have been a lot of other ready-to-drink cocktails hitting the market. Uh, so that's interesting. That was a ready-to-drink cocktail, as you say, like a ready-to-drink cocktail. Um, and now we've got a lot of canned cocktails. Uh, you've recently written about that, about the RTDs, ready-to-drink canned cocktails. Oh, yeah, there's so many of them now. It's funny because I remember I was in London um, a few years ago, long before we had a lot of ready-to-drink cocktails here, and they were actually selling in the train station uh, canned pims and tonics. I was like, wow, why can't we have that? And now we kind of do. All right. And, and the first time, I mean, I was in the wine store, and they were advertising, well, it was a wine and liquor store, and they had these cans. They were advertising cans at the counter. I guess it was you know, last year or something I, really wasn't aware of it prior to that and oh yeah big business big huge business yeah is there any there so there's no precedent for us to have any kind of cocktails and well I mean that that is the industry just so strict on what can be bottled and canned or canned uh well until recently it just wasn't very very good I I believe that there were uh, restrictions around what could go into cans and where they could be sold. I know in in uh, grocery stores, for example, you can't sell distilled spirits in many states. It's all a, a state-by-state patchwork mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why you can go to the supermarket and you'll find um, cocktail-flavored malt liquor beverages because those are, are not technically distilled spirits and they're below a certain um, alcohol by volume level. And you can find them all over the place. Mm. But certainly in in recent years, it has become big business. There's less of a stigma around canned or, or bottled or, or pre-made drinks being not very good. Now, a lot of them actually are quite good. Lots of them are made by bartenders or backed by big spirits brands. And uh, I mean, they're, they have proliferated. And a lot of distilleries, especially during the pandemic, have switched over to even being canneries and they're canning um, on behalf of, of other other entities, you know, bars and restaurants and uh, other distilleries. Huh. That's that's really, I find that fascinating. Um, I remember when, you know, there were, oh, you know, strawberry wine mixture way back in the day, you know, um, different kind of bottled, it seemed like pre-mixed things. And then then came some hard seltzer, of course, hard cider. Well, you mentioned, yeah, malt liquor. Well, hard cider is not a distilled beverage, so that's that's okay. You can have that, right? That could be 
canned and sold. This is a this is a whole new thing. And cocktails. Why cocktails? And because for a while there, I guess maybe about five years ago, there was this big resurgence of of some of the classic cocktails. Um, you'd see a lot of that in the um, uh, you know in bars that people bartenders were getting into mixing. Uh, you know, say Manhattans and old fashions, and uh, so which so kind of the question is which came first? You know that that resurgence of classic cocktails, or um, you know the cocktails in the can. Well, certainly the resurgence of the classic cocktails, I would imagine, right? Absolutely, absolutely the resurgence of, of cocktails. Yeah, I mean because that really dates back to uh, the the early to mid aughts. That's really when we first started mm. seeing you know, speakeasy culture come back and the yeah. classic cocktails really come back. And the whole canned cocktail wave, that, that's really quite recent. That's, I'd say, the last couple of years. And speaking of speakeasy, um, one of Heritage Radio Network's uh, podcast hosts uh, created a canned cocktail. Sother Teague, he has his own canned cocktail, um, or at least named after him, uh, that I saw on one of the sites. Oh, that's through Livewire, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It is. It's the Livewire brand, I think. Mm-hmm. I was just in his uh, in his general store at Amoria Margo just last weekend. And that's a fun little candy land. Oh, I have to, I'm going to have to check that out. There's an entire cooler full of uh, bottled, ready-to-drink cocktails. I, I walked out with um, a bottle of uh, a pre-made eight Amaro Sazerac, and it was delightful. Hmm. Now, Sazerac, that's another, speaking of Pim's Cup, Sazerac, I mean, there's a, that's a whole other, one of those kind of enigma drinks, like, what is it and what's in it, you know? <laughs> but you can tell me what's in that. Oh, in a Sazerac? Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, that's, that's rye, rye whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's rye whiskey. Usually that's an absinthe rinsed glass. Uh, Peychaud's bitters because, uh, you know, New Orleans, you got to have yeah. your New Orleans heritage in there. Um, yeah, it's, you know, a little, little bit of, of simple syrup or, or sugar to kind of sweeten it. And there's some versions where it's cognac instead of rye whiskey. Yes. But, but uh, if you go to the Sazerac bar in New Orleans, you're going to get, you know, the classic, the Sazerac, right? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, that's, I don't understand whether the Sazerac bar came before the drink or after the drink. Was it invented at the bar? I don't know. Well, there's a lot of mystery around who who invented it. Mm. Um, there's actually, um, let's see, there are a lot of different origin stories for for the Sazerac. That's for sure. Let's see if you want to, if you really want to get into it. Um, I actually just talked with somebody just a couple of weeks ago about the the Sazerac. I can tell you all about that in just a just a pinch. Um, you know me, I love to go deep. I love to dive deep into this. So, yeah, I would like, I'd like I, I didn't even think about the Cesarac until you mentioned it. So it was something we didn't prep for here. And I would love yeah. to know. Well, I mean, it goes back to, to like the, like everything else, it goes back to the 1800s. Everything around here is is 1800s on, on this side of the Atlantic. I mean, mm. I can talk more about, about Pims. I mean, that has a much longer history because England has a much longer history than than the United States. Right. And Sazerac is an, it's a, it's a U.S. drink. It was invented in New Orleans. And it's a, so it's an American uh, cocktail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's given, it's given, um, it's given New Orleans, New Orleans roots. 
but there are just so many different variations of it. Um, I mean, the, the traditional version, you have like the sugar cube and it's, it's muddled with a splash of water to break apart the, the sugar cube. And then you've got um, a bit of Peychaud's with that, uh, measuring a couple of ounces of, of rye whiskey and, you know, you're good to go. Hmm. A lot of the time you'll, you'll find herb saint is the, the herbal liqueur that's used to, to coat the, the glass because that's another, a New Orleans product, but it's still that same herbal, or it might be Pernod, it might be, uh, might be absinthe. Huh. Yeah. Herb, herb saint definitely is a New Orleans, uh, a New Orleans thing. Yeah. Interesting. Well, this this whole thing about, <laughs> about cocktails and and lifting your spirits. I mean, there. I know that uh, I had read in one of the articles you recently wrote that um, the Distilled Spirits Council um, uh, had said yes. There's a there's an uptick in um, in spirit sales um, at this time, and. They and you mentioned that they had attributed the shift to the stuck-at-home consumers, much as I spoke about at the beginning of the show. What can you, I mean? Do you, do you see that COVID has really um, created more of a drinking culture? I think it's been a, a source of amusement for for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially in the early days of the of the pandemic, a lot of people really were just stuck at home making their, their quarantinis. I mean, that's really going to go down in history, I think. Right, quarantinis, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make their quarantinis. And, you know, what was there to do? You could watch Stanley Tucci on Instagram making uh, a Negroni um, <laughs> with, uh, you know, with, with questionable techniques, some said. I don't mean to, to <laughs> trash Stanley Tucci. We love it. And him. I know you are a Negroni purist, yes. <laughs> I love a good Negroni. Yeah. But, you know... There wasn't really a whole lot to to do, and liquor stores were open. They were deemed an essential business. So a lot of people really dug in and relearned how to make cocktails yeah. at home. And I think that's interesting that of all things, you know, the, of course the you know the liquor business was an essential business, of course, because we all needed that cocktail to lift our spirits. Of course, um, yeah, you couldn't go out to bars, you couldn't go to restaurants, you couldn't do anything. So. That's that's interesting. Yes, go learn how to make more cocktails at home. Hmm. Yeah, I think that sales really shifted from on-premise in, in bars to off-premise sales, you know, retail at, at home. Yeah. And do you think that there were more, there was a lot of discovery of, of classic cocktails or were people inventing their own or any indication in any way that you would know? Um, from what I've seen, it's a lot of rediscovery of classics. Um, there seems to be a real surge in sales of tequila and mezcal, uh, hmm. a lot of new celebrity tequila brands. And that's really given everything a real shot in the arm and mezcal's kind of soared on the, on the back of, of tequila. People looking for more interesting agave spirits, different agave spirits. Um, interesting. And then I think as we've kind of moved out of quarantine and slowly moving back into restaurants and bars again, what I'm hearing is that everyone's ready for something new and different. I think we're about to see a real explosion of, of really interesting, complex cocktails. 
like really crazy ones because everyone wants what they couldn't make for themselves at home. Oh, right. Um, it's, it's interesting that what they couldn't make at home, why couldn't they, well, lack of imagination or lack of available products? Well, I don't know what your home bar looks like. I mean, I, here you have PIMS. <laughs> Maybe you made the most fabulous PIMS cup in the world. Um, I honestly only had a handful of, of bottles in my home bar, and it kind of limits what you can make. I mean, I don't have the eight Amaros to make an eight Amaro Sazerac. So I'm pretty happy to go to Amoria Margo and buy an eight Amaro Sazerac and, and take it home and, and try it there. Yeah. And I'll be perfectly happy when I feel safe doing so to go out to a bar and order, you know, a, a 12 Amaro Sazerac <laughs> or, <Wow. laughs> you know, something fanciful and crazy that I just wouldn't make at home. I've been making uh-huh. a whole lot of martinis. Uh, well, you had mentioned when I spoke to you before the show that um, we were talking about our, you know, habits have, you know, have been out to restaurants and this and that. And you said that you were, you were taking advantage of that cocktails to go. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, I've been doing lots of those. I haven't been comfortable really getting out to bars just yet, but I've been mm-hmm. really trying to support bars wherever I can by purchasing cocktails to take home and enjoy there. And it's been amazing to see how, how many there are. And even seeing outside of the New York area, where obviously I'm, I'm not able to, to travel yet, but I've seen people getting drinks in DC and pouches and calling them, you know, Fauci pouches, pouchy pouches. Huh. I mean, people are just so creative putting together cocktail kits and all kinds of, you know, ready-made garnishes. I think one of my favorites, um, just in terms of presentation, uh, Death & Company was doing drinks to go. And they, uh, I had delivered a a Vesper that arrived with a, a perfect little, lemon peel garnish and a perfect little parallelogram. And it just made me happy, you know, pour it into my own glass and garnish it and, you know, transport it when we needed it most. So it comes, it, it, when, when you get it, it comes separated from, obviously if it's got something that's uh, carbonated, you want to, you don't want it to be, you don't want it to, that's not going to travel well, but it's better to pour it fresh. So you ordered a Vesper, you said? Yeah, that's a uh, that? vodka gin uh, lillet, and it was pre-mixed and, and bottled, and it arrived with a, a you know, really perfect little lemon peel garnish. Huh. And I think it was pre-chilled and everything, and it was just, it was lovely. It was, it was nice. Now, that I can see as a canned drink, definitely. Yeah. The canned drinks, you, um, I mean, I, you see a lot of different varieties, but probably just a few companies. Uh, do you see that there are more companies producing these or is it still, you know, the same few uh, producers? The can, uh, the can, yeah, the can cocktails, the can. Mm-hmm. they are exploding. Hmm. Explo- well, not literally exploding. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> I said that it's like, well, that's maybe a poor choice of words, but mm-hmm. Yeah, we're about to have a real aluminum can shortage because there have been so many canned cocktails. I mean, it's it's just incredible. Um, there's a bar, not a bar, sorry, a distillery in LA uh, called Green Bar, and uh, they have have transformed 
they've converted a big part of their distillery to just be a canned cocktail. I don't know what you call it. A, not a factory exactly, but. Uh, production center. Yeah, it's like a production facility. Yeah, they are, they're canning cocktails for themselves, for others. Uh, they're just really shifting their, their resources over to do that because demand is so high right now. It's people who are at home, of course, but sales in, um, in liquor stores and other venues. And I think as travel opens up, I think it's going to be another huge, huge market. I mean, think about drinking on trains, like, like pins, you know, that my pins on a train. Now it's going to be available here or on, I'm seeing some opening on, uh, airplanes. Um, there's a, I can't remember the brand that, that just signed on, I believe for, for Delta airlines. And in today's day and age, canned cocktails on a plane. That's, I mean, how, how perfect is that? Huge. That's perfect. It is perfect. I'm I'm, actually, I want to talk more about that. The, you know, the trains and the plane, trains, planes, Mm -hmm. trains, Mm -hmm. planes, and canned cocktails. Right. Um, when we come back, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about that, the transportation bars. That's, that's interesting. Okay. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Kara Newman, and Kara is a, uh, a spirits writer, and she also is a recipe developer for drinks, and she gives, gives great demonstrations and mixes a good drink. And Kara, you, um, you had just mentioned that some one of the canned cocktail <clears throat> we we're talking about the ready to drink RTDs or ready to drink cocktails um, had signed on with a, with an airlines, but then also train travel. Speaking about that, you know, it's interesting because there's this resurgence of these retro cocktails. You think of the sophisticated cocktail era, you know, and all the the fancy cocktail bars, and the, I just think of somebody with a cigarette holder holding a, a you know, a a, um, a coupe of you know some fancy cocktail in it. Along with the with the retro cocktails, what sounds like that you've just described is retro drinking habits, or not habits. I hate to say habit, but it is a habit. Retro drinking um, places, trains. I mean, the bar car in a train. I mean, that was that was an institution, right? And now planes. I miss bar car. I, I miss trains. So you think we're going back to that kind of, of society? I, I do. I, I think that it's not going to be the same at all. Uh, I mean, I would love it if we went back to, you know, 
Pullman dining cars, like, you know, in the 1860s. Mm. And I don't, I don't see that happening. I mean, they, they used to have these enormous, um, you know, even wine lists on the early Pullman menus. I actually, there's a great book, um, Food on the Rails. That's uh, Jerry Quinzio. Um, and she actually published, and that there was a Pullman menu focused on French cuisine, and it listed more than 50 wines, I mean, 5 Wow. And cocktails like sherry cobblers and punches, and that's kind of the, the precursor of, of bar carts. I wish we could bring bar carts back to, to Amtrak. Hmm. Yeah, that would be fun. And the airlines, I mean, they're... <clears throat> With the introduction of the the so-called jumbo jet back in the uh, the oh, late sixties, they had a I mean there was a there was a bar built in and a little upstairs you went upstairs and and then there was a bar area. I mean I I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know about that. When I was researching <laughs> road soda, I found a there was a nineteen fifty eight promotional video for Pan Am. And it showed passengers sipping champagne coupes, like you were just talking about, sipping champagne from from coupes and sitting in what looked like a like a spacious living room on board a, a flight. And I don't think we're ever going to get back to that. I mean, maybe maybe if you're flying some very luxurious high end airline and you're flying first class, maybe, but. I kind of see myself in the future probably sitting in Economy Plus with a canned cocktail and I'll be perfectly happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I'm of two minds about the the, craze, the cocktail craze. And the first is, you know, what is this need we have? Yeah, we need to celebrate. And cocktails are, as I said, are festive and it's sort of, it's a way to just sort of feel that, okay, life is fun and everything's okay. And then again, being health conscious and not, you know, and, and drinking too much. There's always that. We always have to keep that. In the everything in moderation, of course. Exactly. In moderation. And I think that cocktails in a way keep, might keep some people from drinking in moderation, be, might keep them drinking in moderation because a cocktail is something you don't want to gulp and shoot down and, uh, you know, you want to sip it. It's complex and often sweet. Um, so it's something that you want to savor and, and sip slowly. And I think that, you know, creates a different kind of drinking, um, again, the word habit, but, um, you know, the way in which one consumes is, is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things I really learned during the, the pandemic, for myself anyway, is that a a cocktail is always about more than than just the cocktail. And what I really missed was drinking with other people in a social situation. Mm-hmm. And I missed being in 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 bars because they're they're like communal living rooms. You're with other people. It's the concept of the the third place. You know, your the first place is your home, the second place is your workplace, and the third place is some place that's neither work nor home but it might be social, a bar. Right, exactly. It's social. Yeah. For some people, it's a, a barber shop. For some people, it's a bookstore. But uh, for, for me, for me, it's a bar. And I miss having the experience of somebody else making a cocktail for me and consuming it with other people around 
in an atmosphere that's convivial in some way. Right. And I, cocktails aren't, are not really designed to be consumed alone. I mean, it really is something, I think I agree with you that it's, it's fun to be, to have another person or more people and, you know, and, and have a discussion, you know, and really talk. And we all look forward to that. It's something that we can uh, hope that will happen very soon, I'm sure. Uh, anything on the on the horizon that you can see as far as, well, you mentioned the styles of, of drinking. There might some multi-mix multi, uh, cocktails. Um, wine, I will never lose wine, but wine, of course, meant to be consumed with food, whereas cocktails are just meant for celebration. They can be entertainment in and of themselves. Right, right. I like that. Entertainment in and of themselves. Interesting. Well, I knew I could count on you to answer questions as I, I have to rummage through my, my liquor cabinet again. I mean, there's some stuff in the back, but I don't even know how long it's been there. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not, I'm not sure what it is, but um, I guess I can always count on you to answer those questions. And next time I run across that bottle of Pims, I'll know what to do with it, right? But you mentioned the Wimbledon tennis tournament, and it became the signature drink, right, of Wimbledon's. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely one of the best warm warm weather drinks. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one to, to try. Um, there are even some bartenders who have been trying to remake the, the old, the lost PIMS, like the PIMS 2, 3, 4, 5. You could try to remake your own, you know, PIMS number, number uh, whatever you like with your with your pins as the base. No, so the numbers just um, signify the different li um, liquor that it's made with, and it's not. So gin is the is the original and the primary. So what the the, the other numbers are, let's say, you know, like rum or two wine. is scotch, hmm. two is scotch, three is brandy, uh, four is rum, um, then five that that one was uh, post war. That one was built on on rye, and that was introduced in Canada where they. They drink a lot of rye whiskey, and, and they, for a while they called all all whiskey rye. Hmm. Um, and then uh, number six was vodka. Hmm. And then they stopped giving the numbers. <laughs> well, eventually they're going to run out of run, run out of mixers. I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. then they got rid of all of them, and now the only one that's left is is one. And sometimes they bring out new flavored variations, and they don't have any numbers. Interesting. There are things like, um, you know mango and passion fruit or cider cup or apple. Mm -hmm. Well, I can see why Wimbledon, I mean, Wimbledon adopted it as their, as their signature drink. I mean, because it, with all the fruit, it is a real summertime kind of, you know, celebration because it's packed with fruit. Um, it's really refreshing too. I mean, if you're going to be sitting outside watching a sporting event, you need something that's not, not too boozy and, you know, a, a long drink that you can nurse for a while. Lots yeah. and lots of ice. Yeah. Um, and PIMS suits that. Does anyone really know the ingredients of PIMS? Well, yes, but it's, it's, it's very limited. It's sort of like um, chartreuse. There are only two, two monks who know what is in chartreuse. Supposedly the PIMS recipe is known to six people and six people only. Oh, okay. 
All right. I know Campari is one of those two that has a sort of a, a secretive kind of recipe for the original Campari. Um, I have a theory. It's, it's all kept top secret so that we won't know that it's actually something very, either very straightforward that we could figure out on our own <laughs> or something, you know, so chemical based, we would never want to drink it if we knew. Oh, so could, I, yeah. couldn't taste that good and be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's always I'll go a, with the first theory. Yeah, right. Okay, it's always a pleasure to to speak with you, Kara, and to learn something new about about drinking. Um, and I hope that we all get back to our favorite bars and our favorite cocktails mixed by a, a friendly bartender very soon. Yes, please. Thanks for sharing and thanks for listening. Again, this has been another taste of the past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.